Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. This is not the picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, not perhaps of the Jesus that we think we know, but perhaps the Jesus we think we know is a safe Jesus, one that we can keep safe in a compartment of our lives. Many of you know that I um, am a devotee of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a part in that, if you remember, uh, Narnia is the uh, place where, uh, under the thrall of the White Witch, it is a place where it's always winter and never Christmas. And uh, these four children, the Pevensey children, two girls and two boys, enter into this land of Narnia through a wardrobe. And as they get into this land, they meet up with some beavers, and beavers represent the early Christians. And so they're going, come on, dearies, we've got to go. Aslan is on the move. And Susan, who's the oldest of the two girls, said, well, who is Aslan? And uh, Mrs. Beaver says, oh, you don't know, dear? Aslan's the great lion, the greatest lion. And Susan says, oh, I think I might be a little bit afraid. Is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver says, no, dearie, he's not safe. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. And I think sometimes we tend to make a safe Jesus for ourselves. Aslan is indeed kind of the Christ figure in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. But this passage and others do not allow for us to have this one-dimensional Jesus, this bucolic, safe Jesus, yes, he is the good shepherd. He does care for his sheep. But in other places, we see him sitting down, taking rope, cord, knotting it, and using it as a whip to get out all of the people in his father's temple. You can just imagine the scene. He's swirling the whip around, overturning tables. Coins are going everywhere. The pigeons in their, in their cages are, are going on the floor. All of the things that have been brought in, the trade that is going on in the temple courtyard, he's going through there. He is not a happy camper. He's angry. This is not just a safe, one-dimensional Jesus. He gets completely frustrated with his disciples from time to time. How much longer before you get it, he says. And he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. Woe to you, curses on you. Whitewashed tomb, he's basically saying, you're just painted over decaying flesh. 
That's about the use that you are. And this perhaps is the most startling of Jesus' statements. I came to bring fire to the earth. Do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Well, that sets us a little bit back on our heels, doesn't it? I mean, we've heard, peace I leave with you, my own peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you this peace. And yet he says, I don't come to bring peace. Well, there's a contradiction there, or is there? What is the peace that he gives, and what is this that he is talking about? Well, as always, when you are interpreting scripture, um, you've got to go to the context, because you can take any single portion out of scripture, out of the Bible, and pretty much make it say whatever you want it to say. It only says what it truly says when you look at it within the context of what's gone before and after, within the context of the book in which it is placed in this uh, instance in Luke's Gospel, and then within the New Testament, and then within the entire canon of Scripture, which is a closed canon. And so when we do the work of interpretation That's what we need to go to. So what is the context? Well, the context is Jesus has already told his disciples twice, I'm going up to Jerusalem to sure and certain death. Not something that they understand or are willing to accept. But he's told them twice and he will tell them three times. I'm going to Jerusalem and I will die. And he's also been teaching them and the crowds coming after by words and by signs that he is indeed the long-expected Messiah. And some have chosen to believe him and some have chosen the old religion and to try and kill him. Already we see division at work. He's told them that not only is he the long-expected, long-prophesied Messiah, but that with him has come in God's rule, God's way of doing business, God's way of running the world. We know that as the kingdom of God, but it's basically the rule or the reign of God how God works in the world as king of the world. It's come in with Jesus. It's to be continued on through his disciples and through us. We are new creation. We bring new creation into the world. A new creation is God's perfect rule in the world. Do we see that? Is that as it will be? No, but it has already come in and we are to participate in it spreading out into the kingdom of this world. And what happens is that there, there is a, it's like the tectonic plates that come together. There is going to be a crashing and a division that happens at that time. There was a division amongst the early Jews. As I said, some followed Jesus Some rejected Jesus in the early church within families. There were some who followed 
the way, as it was called, until we were called Christians in Syria, in Antioch, in Syria. And there were some who went with the old religion, who did not believe that this was Messiah within families. Families split apart over who this Jesus was. Until the ultimate division came in 90 AD, just 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, when the Jewish Christians were not allowed into synagogue. Not only were they not allowed into synagogue, they were anathematized in the liturgy in synagogue. The doors were barred to them. Now, for 60 years, Jewish Christians had been worshipping on, on the Sabbath, on Saturday, in synagogue, and then worshipping in homes, breaking bread together, having Eucharist together on the first day of the week, on Sunday. But now they were no longer allowed within the family, within the Jewish family, they were anathematized. Curses were spoken over them at the synagogue services after 90 AD. But you see, that is always the case, that when a choice is required, there is the possibility of division. And Jesus is quite clear, a choice needs to be made. Do you choose for Christ? Do you trust him and his word? Or do you reject him and his word? In our reading in Jeremiah, the Lord asks, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? See, fire in the Old Testament and indeed in the New Testament is, signifies purification. Fire purifies things. Fire is used for the sacrificial system to burn up the sacrifices. Um, places are burnt to, to make them clean. Uh, we know that you know, burning in the forest purifies those dead things so that new life can come up. Fire is seen as this purifying agent. And in, uh, in the book of the prophet uh, Micah, there's this wonderful image of um, the silversmith who holds a silver in a crucible over an incredibly high flame um, because the silver needs to be purified. It's got dross in it. It's got impurities in it. And the only way that you can purify silver is to heat it up to a very, very high degree. But what happened was that the silversmith would hold the crucible very close to the flame. So, um, you know, not quite, of course, because they'd be burnt up, but very close to the flame. It's an uncomfortable thing to be a silversmith because the way that a silversmith would know when all of the impurities had been burnt off was when they could see their image in the silver. All of the impurities were gone when looking into over the heat and over the crucible, the silversmith could see their image in the silver. See, that's the image for us. The Lord does this work in us through the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit 
to cleanse us of our sin and so that we are in the image of the one in whose image we were initially made, in the image of God. So that as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, through the purifying of the Holy Spirit, God can see his image more clearly in us. It's a purification. And this is the purification that Jesus is talking about, the purifying fire of his baptism. He's already been baptized in water in the Jordan River at the beginning of his ministry by his cousin, John the Baptist. That isn't the baptism that he's talking about here. That baptism has already happened. He says, what stress I am under until this baptism comes about. This is a baptism of fire. This is the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ in his crucifixion. This is when our Lord is nailed to the cross and our sins are placed upon him and the judgment that would come on us comes on him and the holiness of God which would consume us Because God, who is all holy, cannot be in the presence of sin. And so all of our sins are placed on on the Lord and the holiness of God consumes our sin on Christ so that we go through this with him, die with him, and are raised to new life with the sin burnt away, with the sin washed away. We are made new in this baptism. This is the fire. This is the fire that is going to go through the world. It is the purifying fire of our purification from sin that happens on the cross and that after his death and resurrection and ascension will sweep outwards from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's God's kingdom rule. It's his purifying fire that will go throughout the whole world. But the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdoms of this world and there is division. Those tectonic plates start crushing together against each other. We don't see it so much here in the West. In a sense, we have an easy Christianity in the West. We may be, if somebody in our business or professional circles, or maybe even sometimes in our homes know that we're Christian, uh, they might say a snide comment or two about, oh, you're one of those. But that's all we need to deal with. But in the East, in the Middle East, and in Africa, people are persecuted for their faith. They are tortured for their faith. I, uh, I receive information from an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And um, there, uh, there is a, uh, there's a story written, but also a video clip of a young girl 
uh, 13 years old um, at the time of the video from Uganda. She uh, heard the gospel message at school. She heard about a God who loved her and about Christ who died for her. And she became a Christian. But her father was a Muslim. And he was furious that she became a Christian. And he started to beat her, to mistreat her. And finally, in 2010, he locked her into a little mud hut where there was no room for her. So she was completely in a fetal position all of the time. And she was locked in there for six months without food. She survived because her brother, when the father had left, slipped roasted bananas underneath the door. At one point, he threat, the father threatened Susan and her brother with a knife, telling them he was ready to slaughter them. Neighbors became concerned and told the police who rescued her from the home. A local pastor who visited her in the hospital after her rescue said she was bony, weak, unable to walk or talk. Her hair had turned yellow. She had long fingernails and sunken eyes, and she weighed less than 45 pounds. And then there is a video of her, but this is the narration. A, a voice of the martyr's worker visited Susan in April. When asked how she was doing, her face turned serious. She had a lot of pain in her left knee, and she was worried about future complications. Her left leg is not growing as it should, and she's scared about how her leg will function in the future. But when the voice of the martyr's worker asked how she felt about being a Christian, deep dimples appeared on her smiling face. I feel very well, because I'm now with Christ. And you see this amazing peace on her face. This is the peace that passes understanding. It's the peace of knowing God's love, of knowing Christ, of being a new creation in Christ in the middle of terrible torture and violence and pain. And yet she exuded the most incredible sense of peace through this video. I was at Asbury Seminary for a while and one of my fellow students who I became friends with, you might remember her, Judith, I don't know, but she was from, um, I can't remember if she was from Ethiopia or Sudan, but she was raised in a Muslim family and she was told from the time that she could remember that she was of absolutely no value. She was completely worthless as a, as a young girl, as a woman. She had no value to society at all or to her family except to do whatever her brother and her father uh, required of her. She was basically a slave in the house. It was also an area where female circumcision took place and she knew that this would happen to her and indeed when she was about eight or nine years old she saw the local mullah coming with her family to the house 
and she ran out the other door down the dirt road. But they ran after her. They were faster than her. They tackled her to the ground and they performed the circumcision right there in the dirt of that path. And then she was sold by her family to an older man who abused her, beat her. She had a child. And in God's amazing grace, she came into contact with a woman Christian evangelist missionary who told her, you have ultimate worth. Do you not know you're a child of God? He loves you. He died for you. You are not a slave. You are free in Christ. And again, through God's amazing provision, although her family were looking for her to kill her because she had become a Christian, she escaped via a very circuitous route, ended up in Europe, and then ended up here in the United States went to seminary at Asbury, and now has a ministry in Minneapolis as a pastor to women who have never heard that God loves them, that he is indeed their father and a caring father who wants to care for them and hold them. Those were the ones who survived. But there are many others who are persecuted for their faith who die as martyrs. And many of them are children. There was an Italian sociologist, a Roman Catholic, Massimo Intravigne, in 2011, he reported to the International Conference on Interreligious Dialogue between Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And he said that between A.D. 30, the year of our Lord's death, and the year 2000, and he was making this report in 2011, there were 70 million Christian martyrs. Now, we know about the martyrdom of the early Christians. We know about the arenas and being set on fire and being torn apart by the animals. But this is what he said. He said 45 million of the 70 million died in the, la- in the 20th century. In the 20th century, almost half of all of the Christian martyrs from the time of Christ on were martyred in the 20th century. And he said then in 2011 that every five minutes a Christian is martyred for their faith. doesn't include the victims of civil wars or wars between nations. Only those people who are put to death because they are Christians. Baroness Cox, um, who um, came into this diocese quite a few years ago now, but she, for decades, 
has had a ministry to the persecuted church. She was the, um, she was something in the House of Lords, I can't remember, but she's still a member of the House of Lords, but she could never go into these countries on her diplomatic passport. They wouldn't let her in. They knew what she was about. They knew that she was a Christian and that she was going in to help Christians into these places. Uh, She has stories of going into Burma via Thailand over the river while people are shooting at her overhead and having to lie down in the bottom of of a boat as she's been taken into Burma so that she was originally a nurse um, and she was knighted because of what she did in her nursing. But she has this and she continues, she's in her 80s, she continues this amazing ministry and to speak out on behalf of persecuted Christians around the world. She is truly an amazing, an amazing woman. But when she went in over the years, she would go in with medical supplies, she would go in with Bibles, she would go in with chalices. Oftentimes as churches, could we have a sacred chalice with which to celebrate communion? And she, she thought of all of the money, maybe, but they, this was so treasured for them, a chalice with which, through which to drink the Lord's body and blood, to be sustained. But she went in and she took down these stories, and there's one story I think I've possibly shared with you before, but um, it's a difficult one to hear. It's about a boy called Roy Ponto. She says this, Ambon in Indonesia used to be a beautiful town in the exotic Spice Islands until 1999 when it became the epicenter of a violent conflict between Muslim and Christian communities which was to cause the death of thousands. She said, I was visiting the region as part of a group taking medical aid and promoting reconciliation when I met a young boy who told me this sobering challenging and inspiring story. He's remembering the death of his best friend Roy, age 15, as he describes in chilling detail the events he witnessed on the 20th of January, 1999. So he said that the youth group from our church had gone away for a Bible study camping weekend. We were having a very happy time until the terrible moment When a group of Muslim jihadi warriors came looking for us, they took my friend Roy aside and one of the jihadi warriors asked him, Who are you? I'm a soldier of Christ, Roy replied. The man who was asking the question struck Roy with his machete, almost severing his left arm. The man repeated the question, Who are you? Again, Roy replied, I'm one of Christ's soldiers. The jihadi warrior struck Roy with his machete a second time, leaving a big gash on the boy's right shoulder. The warrior asked the question a third time. Although he was in agony, Roy's response began respectfully. Uncle, I cannot say anything else. I am a soldier for Christ. The next swing of the machete ripped open Roy's stomach. He shouted, Jesus as he dropped to his knees and the executioner slit open the boy's throat, Roy was martyred. Carolyn said, as I talk to this boy describing the martyrdom of his friend, I am deeply humbled, not only by Roy's faithfulness in the face of death, but by the demeanor of his friend, 
His face is so serene that I have no doubt that in a similar situation he would do precisely what his best friend had done. And perhaps the most humbling aspect of the whole scene was that it seemed as if this momentous event was no big deal. This is the price they expect to pay for our faith, the child martyrs of our day. We have no idea in the West of what it is to be a Christian and to stand firm and to not blaspheme Christ, but to stand firm on our faith. Would we be able to do so in the face of torture and death? What amazing examples they are. But it continues. In Egypt this week, from Archbishop Munir Anas, a saintly and holy man, who is the Anglican Archbishop of Egypt, Wednesday, August 14th, last Wednesday. Dear friends, greeting in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I write these words, our St. Saviour's Anglican Church in Suez is under heavy attack from those who support former President Mercy. They're throwing stones and Molotov cocktails at the church and have destroyed the car of Reverend Ahab Ayub, the priest in charge of St. Saviour's Church. I'm also aware that there are attacks on other Orthodox churches in Menya and Suhag in Upper Egypt, as well as Catholic Church in Suez. Some police stations are also under attack in different parts of Egypt. Please pray and ask others to pray for this inflammable situation in Egypt. Baptist churches, Orthodox churches, Anglican churches were burnt by the Muslim Brotherhood. The Coptic Orthodox Pope Tawadros II made a statement about the attacks. He said, this had been expected. And as Egyptians and Christians, we are considering our church buildings as a sacrifice to be made for our beloved Egypt. Other church leaders have made similar statements, stressing that church buildings don't make the church, but the body is the church is the body of Christ, made of people who have their faith in him. And that is getting stronger as it passes through these challenging times. It's also important, encouraging to note that many Muslims went to protect the churches. And that in return, many Christians then sent messages to their fellow Muslim citizens saying, buildings can be rebuilt again, but you are priceless. So stay safe and don't worry about the churches. We have no idea what it is to stand firm for our faith in the face of such destruction. There's a story about an elderly bishop in the uh, early centuries of the church, Bishop Polycarp, who uh, was taken to the arena uh, to be burnt because he would not renounce Jesus. And the proconsul, seeing his age, pleaded with him, just blaspheme Jesus, just renounce him, and I'll let you go. You don't need to die. And this is his response. 
Eighty-six years have I served him, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? But see, our human tendency is to want to meet violence with violence. It rises up in us. We have to do something. We have to fight. We have to meet this violence with violence. But that's not the way of the rule of God. That's not the way of God's kingdom rule. It's not the way of new creation. Because the way of new creation and of God's reign is love. It is sacrificial love. The way the Christians responded to their Muslim brothers. Because if we respond with violence, then we are cooperating with the kingdoms of this world. And we are not spreading the kingdom of God. Because his rule, his reign, his kingdom is epitomized in the sacrificial love of Christ on the cross. In the words of the writer to the Hebrews, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. May we be like our Christ, who just loved his people and sacrificed his life for you and for me. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.